Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So Titus, let's talk about this great book together. Uh, Paul has in Timothy's letter addressed some things to uh, the preacher himself and also addresses some things to the church. And that's the same thing in this particular book. So we're going to notice a few things about his relationship with this preacher Titus and also with his relationship to the churches in Crete. Uh, It was written probably somewhere between 62 and 65 AD, around the same time that he's writing uh, 1 Timothy, and maybe close to the time he writes 2 Timothy. And it really goes through a a very good list of things that he expects Titus to teach to the church where he is working. And of course, it's floated around, it's taught in other cities as well, but this is mainly to make sure that he is accomplishing the goal that he was supposed to. So in the book of Acts, if you remember, we went through a few weeks and showed it, showed how uh, when Paul went to these cities and established churches, he basically did a couple of things. One was he made sure that the church had a place to meet, whether it was in the synagogue, whether it was out by the river, whether it was in someone's home or in a collective place where they could gather, made sure that there was a place that the church could assemble in that city. The other thing we see in Acts very clearly is he says that he appointed elders in every city. And that means that he made sure when the church was established that they had shepherds. It's interesting, though, that we would think, maybe because of our mindset, if we were going to plant a church, what's the first thing we would do after getting a building? Who would we secure for the leadership? A preacher, that's right. We would think, hey, we've got a church building, we've got a, a bunch of Christians together, and so we need to appoint a minister to preach. Paul doesn't really think like that because Paul knows that a lot of these ministers are traveling, going from place to place and teaching in various locations. But there is a handful like Timothy in Ephesus and like Titus in Crete that he leaves them there to put things in order. In other words, to follow the apostles' doctrine, to lay down the foundation of what Jesus had established for his leadership team, the apostles, who are dying out and the next great leaders that are going to take hold coming into the end of the first and the start of second century. And these elders who were shepherding these churches 
needed to make sure that the preacher, when he came into town, or if they, they chose to have a located minister or an evangelist, that they also met certain qualities. Now, Timothy, he dives in there a little bit more. He gives Timothy some of the qualities that he expects in him. With Titus, uh, not so much. It seems like it's very quick. Uh, as from start to finish, you can read it in about 15 minutes. And so it's one of the smaller books that Paul wrote. The letter, again, as I said, is, uh, is associated with a pastoral epistle because of the content. But just like in Timothy and just like in some of his other letters, he foresees a persecution heading that way to Crete. Uh, he's expecting that there's going to be some persecution from the Roman government, maybe even some local officials. And if there's one thing that they would need in this church is to have strong shepherds that could guide them through this difficult time. And so he's going to list in the very first chapter some qualities he expects Timothy to practice and to teach, or Titus, pardon me, to practice and to teach for the church there. Now also, uh, Nero has this, uh, the burning of Rome takes place, and he has this uh, kind of conspiracy that is passed around certain circles, that it is the Christians who burned Rome. And so this is the same time when this letter is being written uh, and being passed around. And so Crete, if you look on the map and you kind of see where it's located, even though it's uh, kind of out there by itself, it is still in good proximity to Rome. And so the Roman colonies there obviously had a lot of um, information. They had all these stories coming in. So persecution against Christianity gets worse. And by 64 AD, uh, which is about the time this letter is written, uh, this, this particular congregation was just in its infancy. So to imagine the stress of the government chasing down these Christians to find out what their involvement was, and this church had just recently been planted. And they've got a preacher, uh, basically from history, we assume that he's older than Timothy, but he is, he's, he's kind of been there for a little while, he's appointed elders in this congregation, uh, this is supposed to be a church that's growing, and instead they're focusing on all the hardships that are headed their way. Uh, as for the audience, of course, it's about the churches of Christ in Crete. It's about the congregation there that is meeting and other churches around the island that are meeting and making sure that they are being taught what is right. And like Timothy, Paul tells Titus, I need you to appoint elders. I need you to find men that are qualified, and I need you to put them into the leadership. And he also talks a little bit about daily living from that perspective, but a lot of it is just about church leadership, making sure that the, the missionary team that had been planted, the minister, the elders, uh, whoever, anybody else was in the leadership team there at, at, uh, in this congregation, that they knew unity was important. Uh, they understood the, the necessity of morality. They were focusing on Christian obligations to the community and that they must give back. So all this kind of com combines right there in this section. And I just noticed, do you see, anybody else see the typo? First Timothy, that's right. Thank you. First Timothy. First Timothy, it should say Titus there. Uh, and you know what? It's all wrong because all of that is First Timothy. So I'm sorry. I put my slides together in a hurry today. So just ignore those verses there. The verses that I would recognize as key verses in Timothy would be, say, chapter 1, uh, verse 2, verses 5 through 9, uh, verse 15. In chapter 2, uh, we're going to notice some verses like in chapter uh, 2, verse 15, really verse 11 through verse 15. And then in chapter 3, there's a few little sections towards the end, uh, verse 11, verse 14, and chapter 3 that are also really neat that we will cover as we go through them together. So as for the outline, let me give you the outline and then we'll go through and read sections together. 
basically, uh, you divide it up by the three chapters. The first is about church organization. The second is about their obligation on what to teach, what to preach. And he specifically identifies every cluster in the congregation, the older, the younger, the older men, younger men, older women, younger women, uh, the servants, and in all the saints. And the last chapter is about how the church is to operate, how they're supposed to continue to stay, not only organized, but moving forward uh, towards a good end. So let's focus on chapter one here to start. And I want to just go ahead and just dive right in. We'll start in verse one. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledged of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of our God and Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he has a little bit of a lengthy introduction before he jumps into his uh, the fact that he's writing this to someone he considers to be very close in the faith, son in the faith, very similar to, to Timothy. Uh, but he also says that these things are set in order. And so when you're going to see the next few sections, this is very important. Sometimes we, when we, we are asked Bible questions, we will try to jump to one specific text to prove our point. Because we want to be able to kind of make sure that one verse is the key verse. But here's the interesting thing about the Bible. One verse can't really answer most of anything. In fact, many times we'll say, well, I love this verse, like for instance on baptism. We'll say Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38 is the go-to verse on baptism. Well, then you have to ask, well, who's preaching it? Well, it's Peter, it's not Jesus. Did Jesus ever talk about baptism? Well, yes, of course he did. And we would go back to his baptism. We'd look at Matthew chapter 3 and say, well, there we have Jesus being baptized. But when did Jesus actually talk about baptism? So I'll usually, when somebody asks about that, I'll take him to John chapter 3, when he tells Nicodemus, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of water and of spirit. And then, when you read that, verse 3 and verse 5, and get the context, you go to Acts chapter 2, and you realize that Jesus had instructed Peter, as he had instructed Nicodemus and the other apostles there that were present, that they needed to be born of water and spirit. So when he said, when they asked, what do we need to be baptized or to be saved? He says, repent. And be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for missionary sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you have the water and you have the Spirit that was taught to Nicodemus, was taught to the apostles in John chapter uh, 3, and it's also taught in Acts chapter 2. So sometimes we will jump to one specific text. So this is an important part. As he starts his argument that the church needs to be organized, that the church needs to have structure, that there need to be shepherds, and there need to be ministers who preach, and you do not confuse the roles. He starts off by showing that God has organized things since creation. So uh, as a child, maybe you remember this. If you're a teacher, you probably do. Day one, day one, God made earth when there was none. You know that one? You know that song? Is that right? Then you got day two, day three, day four. Why do we sing the days to our kids? Why do we sing day one, day two, day three, day four? Yes, to talk to them about creation and to specifically say that certain things were created on certain days. If we look at science, you have to understand that when God created the earth, there had to be an atmosphere that was present to be able to sustain life. 
Once the atmosphere that was created to sustain life had water and had land, then there has to be vegetation. Now, why does vegetation have to come? Well, it needs the water that's there before, right? It needs the dirt that's there before, but the vegetation needs to be present because on the next day of creation, what happens? Well, there are little critters. And as you continue to go through each step of creation, God shows us how to build the perfect ecosystem. And in Genesis chapter 1, he lays this foundation and builds each day until the creation of man, which is the crowning glory of all creation. And so that's the reason why Moses has written it the way he has in Genesis. It happened exactly like this, so that we'll all see, oh, hey, God didn't just go, poof, it's all here. Every single thing was created in a certain way, on a certain day, in a certain season, so that therefore the cycle could be set in motion. It's kind of like uh, even with life itself, with humanity, with the things, the little critters that we eat. You know, we don't need... We don't need the circle of life and the Lion King to teach us that we're a little higher on the food chain, right? But there are certain things that needed to be present, little critters, little animals, fish, that had to be present for the next level of beasts and birds to be created, and then finding, finally that crowning glory, which is humanity, to be created. God has always done things in structure, in organization. That's why Titus, Paul starts off with talking about things that God foreordained, things that God pre-planned. And by saying that, we can go to Ephesians, we can go to Colossians, and we can see that the church was not an afterthought. The church of the Lord was not some thought that God said, you know what, we're going to do away with Judaism, and we're going to recreate this nation of believers from all the different nations, because it's just not working. The system's broken. That's not the reason. Judaism, the, the idea of the old law and following up into the cross, was all necessary. And that's why every single step and every single law is fulfilled by Christ. When we look at the book of Hebrews. And everything was done specifically in a certain way to get us to the point at the cross. And from then, God doesn't go, well, you know what, it's not working. I'm just going to have to send, you know, it's kind of like when you, when you have a mess in a bedroom. You ever told your kids, clean up, clean up, clean up. Finally, you go, don't make me come down there, Right? That's not what happened in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't that God said, I'm going to have to come down here and clean up this mess. Well, how do we know that? Because in the third chapter of Genesis, as soon as man falls and eats from the fruit, he immediately says, and there will be enmity between your seed and her seed to Satan. He says, there's going to now be through this woman a seed that will be preserved. And that is the seed of Christ. That through Adam all the way to Noah, and through Noah all the way to Abraham, and Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, and on through Judah, all the way 4,000 years later, it comes to Christ. God doesn't do anything as a second thought. Everything that God does is structured. It is organized. It is planned. So it would make sense that when it comes to the church, the new covenant with God, that he would have a structured plan of what is to be taught what is to be practiced, and who is to lead. That's the reason why uh, Paul will say to the elders at Ephesus, you need to remember that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You need to remember that God has inspired you, encouraged you, led you to take this role in the congregation. And so that structure is important for the next few chapters, is that God has set things, in, uh, he has done things in due time. He's manifested it, he's planned it, he's preordained that his church follow a certain model. 
It's almost like uh, God has laid before us in the New Testament a blueprint. Now, why would we need that? It, wouldn't it be, I mean, the, the apostles were inspired of God. They, they had the Holy Spirit. Surely, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 generations after, we would still be on the right path, right? Well, no, as humans, we will mess up spiritual things because we bring in our own opinions and our own thoughts and, hey, we ought to do it this way and that way. And God knew, foreordained, foreprepanned, that when the church would go off track some 18 years, 1800 years later, that people could pick up a Bible if it was printed in their language they could read and reconstruct that basic, it's built on the foundation, but reconstruct the basic building blocks that is necessary to be the New Testament church. At any time from this point until the day Jesus comes again, the word of God will never pass away. This is the last covenant. And so anyone, if you were to take all the Bibles in the world and burn them, burn them all, throw them all away, and every person who had ever studied Scripture were to die, God's Word would be preserved somewhere, somehow. Even today, we find all kinds of scrolls. They tried for centuries to burn Bibles, get rid of scrolls. They've been unable to, because it continually God has preserved His Word. But somebody's going to pick up a Bible, and they're beginning to see there's this pattern here of this God and His creation. And anytime someone picks up the Bible... They have an opportunity to see what is necessary for their own life and also for the church. And so now he says, with this in, this mind, in mind, we need leaders who are going to teach this, preach this, but there are qualities they must have to fulfill the mission God has put for them. And he says to him in verse 5, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So let's just kind of look at verse 5 and uh, try to say this in a mild way. If a church without elders is lacking, is he speaking just of the church at Crete or is he speaking in a broader sense to the church as a whole? This is the pattern God has set forth. This is what he wants. So every congregation without elders, should be seeking to appoint elders. Does that make sense? They should be looking to be a true New Testament church. They want to be, even though they're teaching things in worship and teaching things from the pulpit that are correct, if you really want to be where God wants you, you should be training up men to preach or training up men to shepherd. Um, now, that doesn't mean some churches are small, 10, 15 people. They may be unable to do that. But that is a goal that is set um, and one of the reasons why I believe that that is, is because if you don't have spiritual leaders, if you don't have men that are following the New Testament, preaching and teaching, or at least if they're shepherds encouraging the preacher to teach and preach things that are true, it is a possibility that people could lead, quote unquote, that are uns uh, unscriptural unqualified in various realms. I'll give you an example. Of, I, I used to, early on in preaching, I'm sure Nathan, Billy, we've had this experience. We've been at churches that didn't have elders. And I can't tell you how many meetings we would have a men's meeting, and there would be guys that didn't show up except for that Sunday night because they knew that Sunday night they got a vote. And they wouldn't show up at church at any time, but they would show up that Sunday evening to be able to vote on budgetary needs, on whether or not the preacher should be fired, <laughs> on, on what kind of bulletin we're putting out, who's mowing the grass. 
And so God has set, he didn't, Moses didn't just lead all by himself. Remember his father-in-law pulled him aside and he said, you need men, elders, that will help you in doing the work. One man can't do it all by himself. And, and we should not encourage our preachers to be the pastor of the church. We have shepherds for that role. So every person doing their part is where the church gets to be in this mature form where it can then grow, really literally planting ourselves in all kinds of places. Should be trying to train it. I think it starts with the younger men. If you have any men in the congregation at all, uh, you say, well, you know, like for instance, you're 29 years old, you're a young guy, you know, and I'm, I'm 45, I'm still pretty young, right? But you start teaching the younger guys these are the qualities you need to be, because if you're not going to be a shepherd today, you might be in 20 years. So here's a list of qualities. So you never throw in the towel, per se. You don't throw in the towel and say, well, we're just not going to do this. Um, we're just going to quit, and we're just not going to have a church. Church needs to be present, but they also need a good leadership team. What I would suggest to a small congregation is to seek out shepherds at other churches nearby to come in and say, these are some things that we did. These are some things. This is how we appointed elders. Uh, and mature the congregation. We don't really know how many years into uh, the establishment of the church that men were appointed as shepherds. We see them in Acts 6 listed there. They're not really deacons, but serve kind of as a role like a deacon does. But it's, we see by the middle of the book of Acts that as the church matures, they're seeking spiritual leadership. Um, we also need to train our preachers better on how to work with a congregation that does not have elders instead of just kind of throwing them to the wolves. When you say, when you get to this church, your goal is to inspire and encourage the men to take the lead. You're encouraging the men. Here are some qualities. Here are some things. Encourage people. Um, and also, if there are individuals in that congregation that are, uh, say, unqualified to be an elder or a deacon, but can still help in teaching or preaching or something like that, you find that, current, that particular role. Let's say, you know, he didn't have any children or um, maybe somebody who is, is living a single life like Paul did. You can use them in other roles, not necessarily as an elder or deacon because they don't meet the qualities. But I don't think a church should just throw in the towel because they've been open for 10 years and don't have elders. I think you just need to be striving for a spiritual male leadership team. Uh, and I've been at churches before that had two elders and one deacon, and it was, you know, like half the men of the church. So really, it's just trying our very best uh, to make do. And we have a very merciful and understanding God. We just don't want to have everything in the hands of the preacher all the time because preachers come and go, unfortunately. We find one we love, and he's there five, ten years, and he moves on to another place. But the shepherds are the ones that are going to stay. They're going to mentor. They're going to encourage. They're going to teach. They're going to train. And they're going to make sure that the church is being fed the appropriate spiritual diet. So a good preacher will be grooming men for that leadership team the whole time he's there. You need to think about leading. Using them as a deacon. Let them be tested first. Putting them into the eldership. And really, it is the elders that are present. It's their job to try to seek out those men as well. But the preacher should be looking, praying for, and, and encouraging men to lead. Yeah, yeah we need to have uh, elders and deacons classes, even if you're not as a, a deacon or an elder in that role, classes like that. And I would say also, too, not to leave the ladies out. We, we do a lot of our conversation about male spiritual leadership, but we also need to take our ladies aside and say, here are some things that you can do. You know, first of all, seek out a godly man that you can lead and encourage and lead a family with. You know, you need to find somebody that you, you know, you mesh with, do ministry with, spend the rest of your life with. Find somebody that, that spends time in prayer and Bible study and loves the Lord more than you do. 
And then, then that's the first thing. And then moving forward, encourage your husbands, encourage your sons to take leadership roles. Uh, and also how you can get behind them. Because there are qualities for the women, too, and we mentioned in uh, 1 Timothy 3. So there really needs to be a good time where it's separated, where the men and women are learning what they can do and how they can function in a, a certain way. That's why I like Teach to Teach with Lads to Leaders, is you actually have a program that takes the kids and puts them in a classroom as a, uh, an aide or a kind of a mentor, and then you work them up to the teacher role. And there's still, there's still room for improvement in a lot of those areas, and we're, you know, we're always trying our best to encourage the next group of teachers that are stepping up to the, to the classroom. Um, just real quickly, notice here also, he says that in, in order to set the things in order, he says, if a man is, and here's the qualities, very similar, there's only a few changes, not changes, but a few, we'll say, additional things for the church in Crete that they needed. But it says that uh, they need to have a be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. In other words, not conflict-oriented. It says, uh, for a bishop, and that word bishop, overseer, the word for elder, shepherd, those used are interchangeably, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. And then this last part is a good one. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. And it is oftentimes a confusing thing. People think that it's the preacher's role to uh, correct and rebuke and exhort. Now, we know, of course, from uh, first t- or 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, that the Bible is supposed to help us do that. And the preacher should be making sure that people are convicted by sound doctrine. But it also says that the shepherds are supposed to have that particular role. And the reason why is because the shepherds are involved with the feeding of the flock. And so when there comes a need where a brother or sister is in sin and they need to be corrected, it is the elder's role to go and to help make that correction because they are the ones that are responsible for the souls of the flock, not necessarily the preacher. Now, if he's, he is a teacher, teachers are held to a higher judgment, but it's the shepherd's job to make sure that the proper things are being taught and the proper things are being practiced. And so he says, I need you to find some good men that are faithful to the word of God, just like I taught you. And I need, and that sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 2, doesn't it? I need you to tell them they need to go out and they need, by sound doctrine, exhort and convict those who contradict. So in other words, if anybody doesn't do what's taught, they're going to be held to account. Uh, then it says, there are many who are insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's going to go through and talk about those that are of Judaism causing conflict within the church at Crete, which means that there were people who were Jewish that had, had come into the assembly, maybe through synagogue service or something like that, but they did not believe or profess Jesus is the Christ. And even if they did, they only did it to be present in the meetings to see what was being taught and what was being practiced. And so he says there's a lot of conflict going on in the church. Now, why weren't these issues handled? Well, there's a thought here that's brought out by Paul is that everybody knows that Cretans are lazy. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow, but he says even some of your own poets have said that you're lazy people. And so this, this has becomes a problem for uh, not only for 
Titus is the preacher, but for the congregation as a whole. Can you imagine being accused of this? Look at verse 12. One of them, prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's, that's exactly what you want to put on the sign, welcome to Summerdale, right? That's what we're known for. We are for these three things. So Titus has a, a very tough job ahead. So laziness is one of the reasons why these problems aren't corrected. Another one is it says gluttons, which means that they were given over to wine and to food, which isn't it interesting? The shepherds of the church are told not to do those things. And then it also says uh, that they, they are evil and they're lying, which are definitely dangerous traits to have. And so they need to set aside what their culture says and come to, together around an open Bible. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he'll say, As for you, Titus, you speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. You might actually underline every time he says sound doctrine in this book. you got to teach the things that are sound. Teach the things that are proper, that are right. And then he says, now if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do it through these categories. You're going to start with, he says, the older men. And then he says, the older women. Then he says the younger men and the younger women. So let's read them through together. It says, the older men be sober. This is verse 2 of chapter 2. Reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, and that, they, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So let me pause before we get to verse 6. Let's talk about the old men and older women. The older men are supposed to teach whom? The younger men. The older women are supposed to teach the younger women. It is the role within the congregation, if you will, for the older ladies to be able to teach. Now, whether it be by their example or by their words, encouraging the younger next generation to do the things that are right. Now, I've always thought it was interesting. I'm, I guess it's one of those things. Have you ever been sent on a task and you get completely sidetracked and you lose track of time? That happens to me. I'll get up, go to the kitchen to grab something, and before I know it, I've made myself a snack. Why did I do that? Because I passed this beautiful door called the pantry. And then I passed this big, giant silver box that's called a refrigerator. And so I will go in to go get something out of another room, and I almost always stop in that central area, that beloved place, La Cocina, you know, the kitchen, okay? And I walk in there, and I just, oh, I love the kitchen. So I get sidetracked. Anybody who has delivered a book or something in written, we, this happens to us on our social media pages or email. We'll go on there to check one specific thing, but before we know it, we've been clearing out a thousand junk mail messages and we forgot to find the one message we went for. Why is it? Because we're easily sidetracked. So what Paul is saying here to the church is, I need you to stay focused. I need you as older people who know the road and you've traveled it to teach, to set aside these things for the younger people. The older men are supposed to instruct, to teach. The older women instruct and teach. Stay on target. So if Titus is unable to stay on target, the men and the women of the church can help keep people on target. Specifically, and this is one of those little sidetracks things, 
I've always thought it was interesting that there's something that is said about the older women teaching the younger that's always kind of got me sidetracked. It says, older ladies, would you please tell the younger women to love their kids? Now, did you see that in the text? You need to teach younger, younger women to love their children. What is that about? I mean, I doubt anybody has brought a child into this world, and I mean, you have the moments, don't get me wrong. You, why in the world do I, you know, she's got your genes, he's got your genes, you know. Why do I have this child? But I doubt anybody says, I just don't love this child anymore. So why does, why does he say, older women, I need you to teach younger women how to be this way and that, and including loving their children and loving their husbands? Yes, Rick. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tough road. I always tell my kids, you know, dad first. Um, I had a, a guy one time, a deacon, who came to me and he said, I want, my, I want to be my kid's best friend. That's, what, that's all I want to be. And I said, well, that explains why you're having some trouble in your house, because you don't want to say no to your friend, and you want to let him have freedom. But as a parent, you have to. You have to say no. Uh, so the older women have to, to say to the younger women, look, you need to love your family, and you need to love your children. In other words, that is priority number one. They're not saying, hey, I know you don't love your kids. Let me teach you how to do it, because everybody loves their family. The older women are to say to the younger, your husband is your priority. Your children, they're your priority. God gave those children to you. He gave that spouse to you. So before you start thinking about all, having all these delusion of grandeur, remember you don't want to sacrifice what you've got in your husband and with your children. That's your first priority. That's not to say you can't have other priorities. We all have lots of different priorities. But that is the primary thing. And older women can say that to the younger women because they've raised their children. And some of them have... Uh, their, their husbands have passed away and they're widows and they have loved their husbands and so they can say to the younger enjoy these moments while you got them you know take the day off go to the beach go to the trees take your kid fishing went fishing uh, Saturday we only got it in about three hours first time I'd taken my son fishing in like a year and some of you guys are probably how could you do that I just don't have any time too busy I took, took him fishing for just a few hours, and I sat there the whole time thinking, man, I wish I had done this sooner. Man, I wish I had done this. And one day, I'll say, I didn't do it. You know, the cat in the cradle and the silver spoon type thing. So we've got to, and so younger women need to be taught, hey, let me watch your child. You go spend time with your husband right now. Let me, let me teach the children's class so you can sit with your husband in the adult class so that you can learn in the young adult class. Let me help you. Younger women need that. Some of them that become Christians early in life, their parents are not members of the church. They need the older women. I'm not just trying to harp on the older women, because the same thing with older men. Mentor, encourage, uh, to make sure the next generation is ready. I, I, I try not to bring too much up, because Misty and I talk about a whole range of topics. But we were talking about this just today. Is if, if, I could, if I could have a moment with a bunch of young people or people that are college age, what would I say to them about marriage and about life? And I would say, take your time. Don't get in such a hurry. You know, I, I, if I could give some advice to my kids, I'd tell them, you need to date. Well, before you date, just be friends with people. You don't have to date. Just be friends. Find you a good friend. Then talk about dating. Have some family date, group date time. Take out, go with your brothers, sisters, friends. Then 
alone, and then talk about courtship and all that stuff. But we're in such a hurry. It's almost like everybody's in a rush. Uh, I've seen this so many times lately with, with young women that are getting married. As soon as they do, the, somebody in the wedding's going, man, I'm next. They're, they're chasing that bouquet like it's made of a million dollars. They say, I want to be next. I want to be next. Take your time. Take your time. And so the older women can say to the younger women, keep your priorities. Take your time. Share the moments while you have them. Yeah. Oh, he's done. All right. And so then now he goes to the younger ones because if you're going to have, and a lot of people, older people want to teach, you have to have younger people who listen. And that means they got to take those earbuds out of their ears. You know, there's been times I thought, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to pop them so hard that earbud's going to pop out their ear because they're not paying attention. Hey, you hear me? You hear what I say? Because they're looking at you, but they aren't paying attention. The hair's over the ears, the hat's over the ears. Take your earbuds out and listen to what I have. Take the phone and put it down just for a minute. Listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I said, I said about 20 years ago, if I was investing in stock, it would be in the ink they put in tattoos because I knew in 20 years it was going to blow up. And the same thing today. I would, if Bosley, or not Bosley, what's, that's the hair treatment place. What's the, what's the, what's the air, air place they have the commercials for? No, 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 the hearing aids. The hearing aids. Belltone, man, get you some stock in Belltone. I'm not a prophet, but I'm telling you, these kids, they cannot keep the buds out of their ears. And they got to turn it up so loud. And you know, if you're looking at them going, hey, can you hear me? And they can't hear you, it's jamming in that ear. So, and they don't want to, yeah. <laughs> Just, that's their excuse. Right. There are stories even in the Old Testament of kings, one specifically, that sought out the advice of the younger counselors instead of the older, and got the entire nation into trouble. And that happens sometimes. We need older mentors. Um, if you've heard me teach enough, you've probably heard me say this. This is my opinion completely. I say off the record. But I love how Paul will always back up his thoughts in other books. It's almost like I believe that Paul had a structure in some of these letters written in such a way, it's almost as if he had the, like Ezra did in the Old Testament, it's almost as if he knew that the books would be placed in a succinct particular order and that things would be taught back to back. When Paul says older and younger, he's already used that phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So when he says, when he says to the women, older women should be put on the roll, that means they should be, older widows should be put on the roll, he says specifically that they are 60 years old. That's not Ray Reynolds, that's, that's Paul. So when Paul talks about the older women teaching the younger, the only other example I have of Paul saying older is 60, and that's the only other place I see him talking about older. Older is 60, according to his standards. Some of you say, well, I'm 60, I'm not older. They li didn't live nearly as long as we did. But the idea is, when, you, when you're 30 and 40 years old, probably the best thing to do would be in a classroom where you can learn about what it means to be a good parent, what it means to be a good faithful follower of Jesus, and then you move to the classroom. So our teachers should not all be 19-year-old kids. Our teachers ought to be, if we're going to follow Paul's pattern of Titus 2, the older women should be teaching. Now, that's a tough one because some of us say, well, I was raised in a church where you graduated high school and they gave you a teacher's manual. Well, I, I know, and that's tough. I've been there. I've been teaching. I've been a full-time teacher since I was 19 years old, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, whatever. But Paul says, I need the older ladies to step up. I need the older women, and again, the only example I see him saying older 
1 Timothy 5 is 60 and up. I need some of those older ladies to teach the younger ladies. And, and again, that's why uh, our, our young people do not have a great relationship sometimes with the older members is because they're not in the class. The only time they see them is in here. So uh, my favorite teachers, like you said, was older, older men and women that were a part of vacation Bible school and Bible classes. And we never, ever reach a stage where we retire from work. We can always be an aide, a helper. So I just can't get down on the floor and wrestle with the kids. You know, I totally understand that. But there's still wisdom God is not done with you yet. Look, everybody go, God is not done with you yet. He's not done with you. You're still breathing, and you can still move your mouth. You still have a brain. We all are still functioning. Well, most of us. You know, I'm popping and creaking a little bit, but we all, we all can continue to contribute to the family. And so if you say, well, I can't do it in the classroom, well, then where else? That's fine, but where else? Because we all need to be functioning. If I take this arm and I tie a rope around it and stick it in my back pocket, and another day, I'm going to have trouble. Every part of the body needs to be functioning in some way. We all got to do something. And so uh, the, the greatest thing you can do is to teach the next generation, I believe, is to help teach. So if you're not a teacher, think about becoming an assistant teacher. We need you. We need you. Our kids need you. Uh, I need you. I, need, I love having older men teach and preach. I love it. For just a few minutes, I want to focus on Titus chapter 3, where the uh, recording left off. Uh, we were hoping on having an additional class on the rest of Titus, uh, which would just probably be just a few minutes on the third chapter. And so uh, they will be covering that in the auditorium there on uh, Wednesday night in Somerdale. But because I am out of town, I'm going to be filling in uh, some of the gaps here in the third chapter that I think are very, very important. So the first thing is I want to remind you that, that he tells Timothy and Titus both to respect the people in their community. They're supposed to respect the leaders, respect those individuals that are out there um, working, uh, doing whether it be county jobs, state jobs, national government jobs. He says you need to be respectful. You need to give honor to where honor is due. Uh, you need to think about those people that are placed there by basically uh, placed there by God if you're reading Romans 13. And so he starts off chapter three by saying, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. This is the idea that, and, and, and Luke does a great job of doing this in Luke and Acts to show that those that were among the, the Christian church were focused on being the best version of themselves that they could possibly be. And in doing that, if you're changing the way you think and you're changing the way you act and you're changing the way you work and serve and so forth, every part of your being is is now heavily influenced by your walk with God. So therefore, it would make sense that when it comes to respecting people in authority, we would be more respectful because of our role as a Christian. So he says, I need you. And remember last chapter, he's, he's talked about teaching the older and the younger and so forth. He says, these are the things you need to teach. You need to use your authority, you know, and remember you're young, but teach people these particular things. And these, these things that he mentions here in this section can be seen for any aspect of, of our lives. But he says, especially they need to be prevalent when we're out in public. 
And he says, you know, you, you, we were once foolish and disobedient, deceived and serving lusts and pleasures and so forth, malice, envy, hate, hating one another. He says, but th- these things have changed. The kindness and love of God has appeared towards us and that we now as a child of God no longer act that way. We're a new Christian. We're a new child. We're a, a new babe in Christ. We, we are not the same person that we used to be. And, and he tells us why that is. Uh, he says in verse 5, it's because of the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's because the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, and now the Spirit lives inside of us that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of God, we could say. And how he poured that out upon us abundantly. Um, he talks about grace. He talks about hope in this particular section. But ultimately, looking at verse uh, 8, he says, This is a faithful saying, these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. He says, these things are good for you. They're good for your relationship with your spouse, your children, your employer, uh, your government. These are characteristics that every person ought to try to attain or to follow. This is an example, prime example of what someone like Christ uh, how they would live in this world. Go back and look at Jesus's image. In fact, go back and look at how he treated uh, the government. Now they wanted him to rise up and be this militant Messiah. And he was not. And that's one of the reasons why they hated him. They said, well, if he's so spiritual, shouldn't he want to protect spiritual people? You know, shouldn't he want to set uh, Jerusalem free, the Jews free from the Roman oppression? And of course, God, knows what they're under and of course jesus is sympathetic to the cause but he says that was not his purpose to come with some militant mindset instead he came with the spirit of gentleness and kindness which is emphasized here in chapter three and he says you know another thing titus he says i need you to avoid certain things he says in verse nine foolish disputes genealogies contentions strivings about with the law they are unprofitable and useless. So he says, don't do those things. And then you reject anybody that's divisive. You know, you give them one or two chances to repent. And after that, just know they're warped. Their brain is warped. They're, they're sinning. They're condemned. They, they are choosing to follow this ungodly, unholy path. Don't you dare go down it with them. And this goes back to something uh, else that was said of the disciples in that they would shake the dust from their feet. They'd say, you know, I'm, I'm no longer going to hold myself to this standard of trying to, to work with, to, to serve this individual if they are constantly going to do things that are sinful. I just refuse to do it. And so Paul is a guy who's tremendously gracious. He is loving. He wants the gospel to go to the whole world. But he says, even I have to have my limits. And Titus, learn from me. There comes a point where you have to say, that's I've done all that I can do. It's now... It's now going to be turned over to God, and I, I just I'm going to kind of step back and be away from it. And so that's kind of how he wraps up his book. He, he does mention a couple things here about uh, making sure his lawyer is ready, making sure he's got all the the, the proper things he needs to have his needs met. Um, and he says, verse thirty, uh, verse fourteen, he says, and I let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In other words, if you'll help me, then you need to help other people too. We, we need to help one another. One of the goals of Christianity is to work together as a church. We need to fellowship with one another. We need to be around each other and do things spiritual and, and, and also do things as a spiritual people. You know, whether it's some activity or just being out in public, those are the things that are, are 
you know, they're going to bless you and help you and help the church in the long run in the way that we're seen in the community. So this is this is the book of Titus, a great book, a great message for those that are especially preachers or teachers or interested in church ministry and work and leadership. These are the things that he says to these two men, to Timothy and to Titus, if they want to lead the people of God. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldswrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.